0: Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen,
1: hosted by Ken Jordan.
0: Last night, I was talking with a friend about her vision of a personal utopia. She described a place on the land where she could be part of a community that collects and preserves the many lineages of ancient wisdom from around the globe. It would be a kind of high-vibe agrarian shelter that holds and keeps alive sensitive truths, a quiet home, far off the throughway where those special practices could be followed and preserved. A safe spot, where high vibrations would manifest, protected from the hassle and bustle of our chaotic, crisis-ridden world. Sounds tasty, right? Well, obviously, you and I have more than a few friends either pursuing this kind of vision, or who are jonesing to give it a try. Of course, it calls me too, but if we're gonna turn things around and pull humanity back from the cliff's edge that we're currently teetering on, a different kind of effort is necessary. Rather than building idyllic Edens in the distant countryside, we need to infuse our cities and suburbs and the institutions at their center with those precious practices and the highly tuned awareness that they lead to. Then we need to see what comes from that. The bet is that altered minds will make different decisions and these institutions will begin to behave differently as a result. The consciousness shift has to happen everywhere, because we're all in this mess together. There's nowhere to hide. The supposedly safe space off the grid is still going to experience ecosystem collapse when the rest of us are in the middle of that mess. Even if you did manage to buy that perfect mountaintop location with a fresh water source and fields of biodynamic topsoil, How long could you actually hold out with the rest of humanity trying to scale your electrified perimeter fence? Our interdependence and interconnection are not an abstract thing. They are visceral, immediate. The more sensitive you get, the more you notice it in your own body. But how do people who are locked into the conventional, corporatized, materialist worldview open up to experience that shift, to embrace it, One answer might well be to help people and the companies they work for to develop their own sense of empathic connection. My guest today, Michael Ventura, has been pioneering the conscious use of empathy within organizations as part of the design process, whether it's designing a product or service for a customer or designing an experience or program for employees. He has applied this successfully to Fortune 500 companies, leading NGOs, and governmental organizations, and in the process is innovating new ways to attune an organization's sensitivity to the well-being of those they intend to affect. Michael calls this approach Applied Empathy, which is also the title of his new inspiring book. In this episode, Michael and I talk about, effectively, how it's possible to expand the consciousness- of a corporation because that's how meaningful change will truly spread just think about that it's pretty wild so listen to what he says carefully keeping this in mind it's fascinating Michael Ventura is the CEO and founder of Subrosa a strategy and design firm that has worked with some of the world's largest and most iconic brands organizations and startups From General Electric, Google, Nike, Warby Parker, to the TED Conference, the United Nations, The Daily Show, and the Obama Administration, Michael has served as a board member and advisor to a variety of organizations, including Behance, the Burning Man Project, and Tribal Link Foundation. In addition, Michael leads a thriving indigenous medicine practice, where he helps patients address illness and injury of all types on the road to better well-being. Michael's work to shift how companies value the well-being of those who work for them and those who use their products or services is a sure sign that the consciousness movement is making actual strides, even if these transformational efforts don't get all the headlines they deserve. But maybe it's better that way. And one day when you wake up, the world is totally changed. We're all on the same side and no one even noticed it happening. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways, while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more. But the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery district of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan between Bowery and 2nd Avenue and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. How does somebody know when they're being truly empathetic?
1: For me, that answer comes from two parts. The first is, are you aware enough of your own unconscious or conscious biases, right? And that with that awareness, you can step outside of them and go into someone else's perspective and genuinely try to get a, a, a deeper understanding.
0: Well, that's the big challenge because- Right.
1: You don't know, I you don't know. I would
0: say that a lot of us have trouble identifying Mm-hmm. our unconscious biases.
1: Yeah, and unconscious bias. Because they are unconscious. Right, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> there is unconscious bias training, and you can do that sort of stuff. And what comes around is, at a certain point, no one's going to ever be 100% aware of themselves, right? Let's be uh, honest. And the Dalai
0: Lama is not 100% yeah, aware of himself, right, exactly. I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. Not that we've had a lot of, you know, heart to so hearts.
1: Yeah, he hasn't been on the show yet. Not yet. No. <laughs> Next you know, January, right. we're going for it. Um, but the the trick, I guess, is can you get more and more aware, and can you practice a state of self observation enough that you are noticing it faster, right? I'm are are noticing when I am putting my own spin on things. I'm noticing when I'm overbearingly sort of bringing my perspective into the conversation, as opposed to trying to stay in a neutral state and understand you. So
0: how? Do you do that? I mean, so just to say, we've had a couple of empaths on the show, Mm -hmm. right? David Sauvage is
1: one. Yep, he's a great guy. You know David. I do.
0: Yeah, I'm going to see his, he's got a- Yeah, uh, he's got to show up. Yeah, I'm seeing it tonight.
1: Oh, okay. I have tickets to see it tonight, but I don't know if I'm going to make it. I have tickets for tonight and tomorrow, so I may give tonight to a friend. But Uh if I go, I will see you there.
0: And there he's talking about his own opening as an empath. Yes. Where it wasn't so volitional. It wasn't like he decided he wanted to be more empathetic. It was more like he was assuming- the emotional states of others around him. Mm-hmm. And then he had to actually develop boundaries around that so he could start to make some distinctions between what was his and what was not
1: his. Right. Well, and, and he and I practice very different forms of this in that David's work is a somatic and and real feeling into another person. The work that we do is centered around is really cognitive empathy. Which is a different thing because I think that particularly in the business world, in um, some of the more commercial settings where empathy is really lacking and needed, feeling into and a more somatic version of it is uh, a bridge too far. And most people will not get there. And so what we've tried to do is take that a notch closer to a more learnable, teachable, ownable skill that can be cognitive in nature and a practice as opposed to a gift or a um, sort of hard to reach capability so this is something that a
0: thick person like say myself at one point in my life probably maybe to this day could acquire as a skill set in order to
1: do what what's the what does it do for me so it does a couple things it one allows you to be a better leader because it allows you to, understand the nuances of the folks you're leading, right? And and by leader, I don't just mean like someone at the top, right? I think anyone in an organization can be a leader. You could be 10 days on the job and still act leaderly. Um, but when you look at a team, the folks that lead in a one-size-fits-all approach don't necessarily get the most success because those actions don't often resonate with every person the same way, right? Because we're all different. We're all little snowflakes. And so... Someone who is able to say, of these 10 people that I'm working with, I know this person is motivated by compensation and this person is motivated by positive feedback and this person is motivated by um, pressure and so on and so forth. And then they can lead the right way to get the most out of people. As long as it's being done authentically and with integrity and with an awareness for what that person actually wants, it's great. But this is a topic that I talk about a lot is empathy unto itself is neutral. It's not a good, inherently good behavior. Um, You can use empathy nefariously. Well, you could use it for
0: manipulation. I mean, the way you're describing it now, it sounds like how am I going to get the most – that I want out of that person because I know what his or her weaknesses uh, are or I know what his triggers are.
1: Exactly, and empathy, that is the the case with them. Empathy is not predestined to only be for good, right? So take, for example, what uh, Cambridge Analytica did in the last election cycle. That, you could say, was manipulative empathy, right? They understood how to use and and market to and and push news into a, a, a cycle that would actually influence people's behavior. That, so, right, that, exactly. So you're using the term cognitive empathy. Mm-hmm. I tend to think of empathy as
0: something that comes from the heart and something that one feels in a visceral way through the body and it seems like but
1: obviously cambridge analytica right don't got much heart yeah no certainly not and <laughs> and yeah and, yeah, and you, well there are there are layers to empathy that's the thing right like you as someone who has been working on getting out of your own head and into the minds of others and into the spirit of others for a long time probably have a lot easier time feeling that there are a lot of to, to use your word thick people who are going to have a hard time jumping right into the heart, right? They might not have any familiarity with what that even feels like, but they can start by training the muscle in their mind to perspective take, right? They can start the practice of, uh, much like when someone first starts a mindful meditation practice, it's very difficult for them because their mind doesn't shut down. It doesn't it doesn't get quiet and you know it's it's always constantly running. And then over time they start to see the things starts to settle a little bit more. And the same is true with this. This is a this is a practice you train, it's a skill you cultivate, and with that sense of awareness, you can start to then move into a feeling state. But feeling doesn't come first unless you are naturally predisposed, like someone like David. Right. So when you're open in that way
0: to pick up what others are feeling as you develop that skill set, mm-hmm. is it important to remove yourself somehow from what it is you're picking up to yeah. get some detachment, oh, not yeah. to have an, like, a, an expectation of what it is that that person is going to be bringing to you, but to kind of be open for that? A hundred
1: percent. And there are often words that people synonymize with empathy that are incorrect, right? When I say empathy in a room, a lot of people think, oh, that means we have to be nicer to each other, or we should be sympathetic, or we should be compassionate. And none of those things are empathy. Those are side effects of empathy. But empathy unto itself is a, is a neutral observational state. And it is about getting into the perspective of another to gain richer, deeper understanding about them and what makes them tick and why they act the certain way they act and what might help them get through this next moment or whatever it is, right? Kind of really seeing the world from their shoes. And when we do, often we then will act more compassionately or sympathetically because we can – project ourselves into that perspective and share it with them or uh, understand where they're coming from in a more deep way.
0: Sharing with them is a question because sometimes you don't necessarily, it may not be a good idea.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's not empathy. Once you start sharing, that's sympathy. That's interesting. Right.
0: Or Or compassion or or something else. Or manipulation. Yeah, exactly. Or all kinds of things. I can imagine a number of different contexts where you pick up something that's going on in the other person, you accurately are reading it but actually bringing your interpretation of what's happening to that person to that other person's consciousness may not be a great idea. Yes,
1: I think that, <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely true. Okay. Um, we primarily work with organizational leaders, right? We get brought into a company and they say, look, we, we realize we aren't doing a good enough job understanding our people or our customers or our potential new hires or our board or whatever it might be, right? And we need to learn how to do this better. And so we start talking with them about that. And what's interesting is these folks who have sort of found themselves in the old guard to some degree, right? Most of the leaders in these organizations are boomers or early Gen Xers, right, generationally speaking. Um, This was not a behavior that got you to that place. No. (laughs) But now – It almost could be a blocker. Yeah. But now with the workforce – being almost over 50% millennial, this is a mindset and this is a way of being and showing up in the world that has become much more ubiquitous. Is this like more
0: of a millennial thing?
1: I don't think it's, I I think it's a human thing. I think this has been in our genetic DNA since the dawn of time. I mean, when we scratched images on cave walls, it was in in the desire to understand and be understood, right? So like this is human, but... It wasn't rewarded in a capitalistic society for a long time. And now, in a world where you live with a device in your pocket that gives you everything you want in a personalized, real time, just for Ken way. Most things, not everything. Most things, okay. yeah. Most things. I still have my list of the things that haven't quite come
0: through my phone yet. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, <still laughs> a doesn't couple of girls' phone numbers in particular, for. but yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but in light of that, Younger generations have come to expect a greater sense of understanding and reciprocity and uh, and personalization in their interactions, and leaders who have not have a harder time adjusting to that sometimes. Sub Rosa acts as a brand and marketing consultancy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and org change as well. I mean, I think really in the past two years, we've gotten pulled more and more into what I often now refer to as kind of the braiding of internal culture and capability with external brand and marketing, right? Because those are the fundamental building blocks of everything that a, a good business is built on. If you have the right internal culture, the right people doing the right stuff, the right capabilities inside, um, and the right values, the right pillars, the right, you know, mission statement, and, uh, and then the way that brand manifests that into the world, you can, you can get a lot done.
0: How does empathy play a role in that? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it plays a role on a variety of levels. Take internally first, you know, we've had a very complex year with Me Too and Black Lives Matter and all of these things that have occurred in our cultural zeitgeist. Inside large organizations, those are playing out in a very real way, right? Diversity and inclusion issues, discrimination issues, you know, all sorts of different stuff that are bubbling up inside large organizations. And one of the big things that we're being asked to do is to help assess where the challenges are inside culture and what the blind spots might be. And then developing either training curriculum or interventions of some sort, where we come in and actually undo some of the bad in order to set up the good. Um, you know, help identify where you know there might be a, a bad policy or where there might be a bad actor um, inside an organization that needs to change in order for them to push through into a more inclusive and collaborative culture. Yeah, so can you show?
0: Can you walk me through the decision making process within an organization, mm-hmm. within a company, that
1: leads to them? Calling you, saying we need this. Yeah, uh, it comes in one of two ways. The first is, oh shit, we have a crisis on our hands, and we can't not we can't ignore this now, right? It's sort of a forcing factor, and un- it's unfortunate that some that that's often the I would say that's the majority of when it happens is like when the levy breaks, the phone rings, right, and they're like, oh, we had some really disastrous you know piece of news break because someone did something egregious or terrible. R right. um, RVP of X, Y, and Z is a me too guy. Yep. And now we need to do something about it, right? right. Because uh-huh. historically, a lot of organizations have swept that shit under the rug, right? right. And they're like, oh, well, you know, they'll quietly give someone a, an exit package and kind of get on with the get on. But now like the spotlight is bright and it shines on those things very quickly and, and for good reason. So that's one scenario where the decision tree is pretty straightforward. It's like, oh, we've got a problem. We need to bring in an external and help solve this. The second, which is not uncommon, but is actually, frankly, I think, going to probably become the majority of why we get a phone call now, is that the awareness for this and the tolerance for this is so high right now that people are getting much better at spotting little fires, not infernos. Catching it earlier. Catching it earlier. And so they're saying, there's something bubbling up here that we don't like, and we need to nip that in the bud. Can you help us come in and do some uh, diagnostic work to kind of figure out why this is happening culturally and what we might do to to correct it? That's amazing if that's actually happening Mm -hmm. in corporate America. It definitely is. Well, I think what's happened is culture has never really been capital C, like in quotes, culture, has never been owned by any one department in a company, right? You think about a big multinational and they've got their marketing department, their communications department, their human resources department. Who owns culture, right? Uh, yeah exactly it's it, yeah. in some organizations, it might be one division and some it might be another, and some it might be the confluence thereof. yeah, it's not even that
0: anybody would own it. You might even find that you have different cultures within different departments that exactly. the sales culture is very different than say, I mean book publishing was my background. The editorial culture, yeah, and the sales guys very different way of playing a game,
1: right, right, and, and often
0: at loggerheads
1: yes and 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 if we don't endeavor to, in these more and more integrated times that we live in, create a set of shared values and a a set of uh, ways of communicating and understanding each other and a low watermark for what is acceptable and tolerated behavior, then we don't have a safe workplace, right? Like the bar has to be set at a certain level for everybody. And those sales folks shouldn't be given a pass because they're sales folks. Right, They still have to meet a level of decorum and of uh, respect and integrity for each other. Otherwise, that's when culture erodes because you create hall passes for people.
0: Yeah. Well, so there was a time where whether or not an environment was a safe place for the workers was not considered a company priority. Right. That was actually considered an externality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to even think about that. Yep. It's like, let's look at the profit margins. What are you guys producing? bang 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 pretty cut and dry mm-hmm. you know you're not in the top 90% we're going to cut you from the company's you know right. like you're you're out of here you're on your way out um, and there were all these metrics that, that were being used in order to gauge the success of an employee that had almost nothing to do with that employee's personal well-being
1: right yeah and i think that that has certainly shifted as a result of organizations that are doing this well, becoming much more competitive and much larger, right? Like, for example, you know, in some of the bigger tech companies – they're they're known for having these more inclusive, more sort of switched on cultures to some degree, right? That makes it harder for a uh, an older, established incumbent, large multinational to retain top talent because if they have a choice to go to a switched on place that lets you have you know meditation time or things like that every day, and they recognize the value of work from home days and sort of mental health days that you might need to kind of like you know. Versus someone who expects you in at nine and out at six every day and, you know, grind, grind, grind. The choice becomes very clear for the next crop of talent. So you get a call then. Mm -hmm. Sub Rosa gets a call. You've clearly done a lot of your own
0: work, and we'll get to that in a minute. But clearly, you know, that's been an important part of your path. But you have a whole team you have to bring in that is going to uh, essentially act as this sort of empathetic seismic barometer. <laughs> That's a good in, way of putting it, You In order yeah. to pick up what's going on in the organization. Yeah. How do you train your people to be aware like
1: that? Be great question askers, first and foremost, right? Don't worry about the answers. The answers emerge. Be great inquirers, right? Come into an organization and drop your own preconceived notions of what you might be walking into. Come in neutral, and ask good questions, and see what people say. And really, like, it is as simple as that. That is how it starts for everybody in our organization. When you come in and you start to get pulled into this type of work, what we really try to get people comfortable with is a process that we've developed, which we, you know, kind of, we call the process Applied Empathy, and and, and it is built on how do you diagnose in a neutral way, these issues that may be occurring inside an organization in order to help them push through the blocks, overcome obstacles, and evolve as leaders and people. But each individual member of the team, Mm -hmm.
0: do you lay out a way for them to do their own personal work so they can be receptive in this way?
1: Yes, but we are very conscious as an organization ourselves to not get into a culty state about it, right? There isn't like a you know, here are your Nikes, and we'll be meeting at six thirty tonight for the comet to pass. Um, you know, it's it's not that at all. Right. Um, Better be on time for the full moon ceremony. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah got it. <laughs> um, it's really funny, but the the. We have a we have a framework that we use called the whole self and the whole self looks at we've you know we did a ton of research in developing this going back into the meridian systems of traditional Chinese medicine and into uh, the chakras and into all of these different things and said, okay there are a couple themes that exist across all of these uh, alternative and indigenous paths that have existed for a long time much longer than any corporation has ever managed to stay in business right you yeah. know like <laughs> I, by by a couple of millennia <laughs> by a, yeah exactly yeah. so there's got to be something really to that and obviously i came with a lot of respect for that world already and as we started to look through we pulled out some themes and we said okay there are aspects of the self that every culture has always focused on right the physical self is one of them right every every tradition has a component to it that is about Uh, the body as temple, if you will, right? Some kind of way of caring for the body. So, you know, I sat in a room a couple weeks ago, 300 executives from a client side team. And I asked everybody to take a long, slow, deep breath. And, you know, five, six seconds go by. And I said, raise your hand if you took a breath like that today, no hands go up. Raise your hand if you've taken a breath like that this week, no hands go up. Raise your hand if you've taken a breath like that this month. Five or six hands. Wow. And, you know. People are panting. Yeah. Yeah. And I I said, look, your body is one of the most fundamental first places that you have to have some self-empathy for, right? If you're not putting the right fuel in the tank, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're going to be a a, a hard person to be around. And it's going to be hard for you to be around you sometimes. You know, most people treat their body like a Uber that's taking their brain to meetings. Yeah. Right. And right. it's just like ferrying you to and fro. And they're actually not paying attention to what their physicality is uh, either providing or or deteriorating in their ability to show up for people. So we have this these seven selves. And so one of the things that we do with new hires is we take them through a set of seven exercises to kind of tune in and not necessarily – diagnose them because it's a self-diagnostic tool, right? But what we do is let you go through these exercises and say, after you go through all seven and you rank them, where do I have strong awareness and where do I have lesser awareness? Do I Am I not paying attention to the physical body, but I'm super aware of my emotional state, right? That's another self. Am I aware of those two, but I'm actually having a really hard time understanding my, my intellectual state, right? So like we kind of let you kind of tune into that and calibrate and then understand where your gaps might be.
0: So these are essentially... Simple tools mm-hmm. that people can pick up and use pretty much as they want to use them. Yeah, with the intention that you're helping them in their own self development in a way where they're going to then be better contributors to what the company's mission
1: really is all about. Exactly. Have you
0: been able to bring those same that same set of tools into another company? Oh and yeah,
1: apply it? we do it. We do it all the time. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we we did it twice this week, and we'll do it a bunch of times next week too. Um, So this is it's we get brought in. It's in here. It's in the book. It's in the book. Um, But we we get brought in to sometimes just have as short as a half day or a day intervention where it's like, hey, we're not going to solve every problem you guys have. But we can bring in an awareness for empathy to such a degree that you'll actually be able to tune in a bit more to your own issues and to and to um, perhaps the issues of the organization a half day is not going to solve all your problems, but it's going to at least give you some additional tools to work with. What is a company? I asked that question
0: because you talk a lot in the book about essentially the company's history, mm-hmm. personality effectively, how it expresses itself. I'm wondering where and how you decide what makes that the company. Mm-hmm. Companies are strange organizations too because ultimately they're profit-driven. Yep. There's a bottom line, which can be fairly ruthless in the way that it drives company culture, mm-hmm. right? And there's often people at the top of the company who are creating the company culture who haven't done a lot of this personal work 100%. that sends a message to all of the employees about what is valued and what's not valued. And ultimately, often what's not valued are those aspects of wellness in the self mm-hmm. that are the kinds of things you're talking about cultivating through these practices, for instance. Yes. So it feels to me like there's there is a tension here.
1: Yeah. If the, If there wasn't, it wouldn't be serving its purpose right now. I think that why this has emerged is because there's a great need for it. And if we want to be alive as a species in 60 years from now, I think the organizations that employ all of us and are either going to make good choices or bad choices for our planet and for our sustainability need to start to become more empathic and understand each other better and understand the circumstances we all find ourselves in. To answer your question about what is a company, I think you said the two words that I would say make a company, which are a collection of people and their values. And those values are not always shared, which is why you get conflict inside organizations, and every one of those people have a uh, a very idiosyncratic way of being, right? And they all show up differently. And if you have a good collection of people who have shared values and have the right intention, you end up with a good, solid culture that feels organized and consistent and built on integrity and, and you know heading, heading in the right direction. Um, you can also see organizations that don't have that and you see the opposite occur.
0: I mean, can you have a a healthy organization that makes some crap that really... I mean, could you make, like, I don't know, mobile oil
1: into a healthy company? I don't think it's as binary (laughs) as... It's it's not an on-off switch, right? I think that we would and do work with a lot of organizations that are not necessarily Patagonia, right? Right, sure. Because I believe and our team believes... If we can make a bad actor behave 20% better, that may affect a lot more change in the world than getting a great actor to act even greater. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, because they don't necessarily have to already be drinking the Kool-Aid.
1: No. In fact, I think that taking you from like a bad and by bad, I mean sort of environmentally unconscious right. and toxic workplace culture and, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the, whatever those things might be, to shift an organization from that to a heightened state of awareness for the environment and a better diverse and inclusive organizational culture and a this and a that, that's going to affect many, many people almost instantaneously. There are things we have said no to, and there are debates we have. You know, I mean, our team and us have have talked about certain things, particularly uh, in the realm of hot button topics, like uh, let's say big tobacco. Right? We've never worked with big tobacco, um, but should we? Right. It's right. a provocative question. It's a real question, right? Yeah. And especially because some of them are now going to be investing in cannabis. Exactly. Right. And they're going to and, and they're going to start to see the value of that. And is that a good thing? or Is that a bad thing? I don't have an answer for that, to be honest with you, but it is—it is a topic we ask ourselves because we have to be prepared if the phone rings. Right. So, do you have a clear set of the parameters of
0: what kinds of organizations you want to work with and which ones you would not, or are you just kind of play it by ear based it's, on the? On it's the not ask? so much
1: about industry; it's about circumstance, right? And it's about the topic they come to us with and their willingness to change. I think for us, if it's lip service, if we're being asked to come in because like someone needs to tick a box and say, we did this thing, then, you know, we're not going to waste our time with that because we're not going to actually have our impact felt. But if we know through a couple conversations early on, and you can pick up on it pretty quickly by talking to people, whether or not they really want to affect change or if they're just kind of phoning it in. If it's a phone it in, you know, there are there are other organizations who w- want it more that we should probably be spending our time with. So, a lot of the work you're
0: talking about here is the internal and organizational change. But you've also done marketing campaigns. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. A lot. Mm-hmm. Right? Working with some of these, you know, massive clients. Yeah. Johnson & Johnson, Pantone, Adobe, TED Conference, Delta Airlines. Yeah.
1: The Daily Show. The Daily the Show. The Daily Show. It's good fun. What did you do for the Daily Show? That's funny. Um, we were asked to uh, create a disruptive experience at the Republican National Convention, oh. um, and so uh, they wanted to because they were going to be broadcasting live from there. Um, I guess that was in Cleveland uh, during the last election cycle. This is still John Stewart, or this, no? This no, is Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. And so, yeah, we created um, basically, like, this convention carnival, essentially, which we took old-school carnival games, like a beanbag toss or something like that, um, and made, you know, like, a lying politician beanbag toss thing where we had all different sort of, you know, faux cutouts of different politicians who had been lying, and you threw the lies that they were telling into their own mouths. and stuff like that, And, just like, you know, gags like that. Yeah. And we, you know, designed the whole set for where uh, Trevor Noah broadcasts from from that period, uh, for the, during the, the convention. Now that you might say, well, like, where the fuck is the empathy in that? Right. Good Um, question. (laughs) But you know, the process we have developed is something that allows us to go into an organization and do, you know, cult deep culture work. Like we've been talking about in the beginning of this through this three-step process, but also can go into the daily show audience and say, okay, what does this audience care about? What motivates them? What are the stories that they're interested in? What are the types of things that would make it a uh, a compelling and and humorous and you know the values att- attaching what they care about to the values of the Daily Show? Right? We want to deliver interesting news. We want to do it in a way that's funny and and humorous um, and and uh, satirical. We want to be topical. We want to be you know sort of in the center of the hurricane. All of, I'm making these up, but this is generally what they're you know what we all know the Daily Show to be. Mm-hmm. And empathy really at play there is if we have empathy for that and and a deep understanding of what they want and a deep understanding of what those consumers want and a deep understanding of what's happening in the zeitgeist, you can build something effective that sits at the intersection of those three things.
0: So if you walk in, you walk into the Daily Show office, mm-hmm. who do you talk to about this? Like, how do you do that analysis? What's the, t- you know, because there is nobody there holding company culture, I'm assuming.
1: Uh, No, not like a department. Yeah, sure. So like, how do you... You, We talk with people. Like, I mean, we literally, I know it sounds like reductionist, but it's every project we do starts with at minimum 10 stakeholder interviews. And we say, okay, who are the people we need to talk to? And we talk to them. And then we also talk to the people they didn't tell us to talk to, right? Like, okay, those... Five sound right, but we're also going to go talk to, you know, this partner of yours, and we're going to talk to two customers. I don't talk to that guy. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't understand anything.
1: Right. And then, and inevitably, there are always kernels of wisdom in those ones that we hadn't been told to go talk to because, of course, there are. Why wouldn't there be? Right. And
0: so, you're bringing a process Mm -hmm. into every organization, effectively. Yeah. Where you're beginning to identify what questions to ask and who to ask them to. Mm-hmm. And then that leads to a kind of, that discovery leads to coming up with certain objectives that you want to achieve on the project, I guess, that yeah. you're being handled and being, being brought in to do, right? right? Yeah. So it's, it sounds like you kind of, there's a bit of a cookie cutter thing here, but only up to a point and then a certain, then you really got to kind of
1: yeah, I would say that there's freestyle a, it a bit. The process doesn't beget the outcome, right? So the, the process... Uh, Maybe that's a better way of saying it. the process does beget the outcome. What the what the, pro- the process doesn't predetermine the outcome is a better way of saying that. Um, the process, if we follow the way we do our work, we will find the right clues to come up with the right answer. You got into this originally
0: through advertising marketing
1: yeah that was your specialty was, is a i mean specialty is a funny word well, when you're 23 okay, yeah, uh, well, so uh, i was uh, out of college yeah i had been out of college for about a year and a half i had been working at a marketing and, and advertising agency and they did around the layoffs i was laid off i was then 22 23 something like that and this was the era where everybody wanted a flash website those big clunky loading screens. And so a buddy of mine and I both were talking about trying to start something up. And I had a conversation with my parents at the time and I was terrified of having it. I was, you know, I was worried that they were going to say like, you know, you need to get a real job. And like, you know, this isn't a time to, you know, screw around. This is, you know, we're in a recession. This was, you know, uh, the bubble had just burst. This is whatever that was, 2003, 2002. I went and talked with them and they said, look, you don't have a family to pay for, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have any of these big responsibilities. If you're ever going to take a risk and try to start something, now's your chance. So like go do it. We're not going to like bankroll you, but like if you need money for groceries, call. You know, like we'll give you we'll give you a little cushion for a period of time. But if in like seven, eight, nine months from now this isn't working, you're probably gonna have to get a job. And they just they gave me just enough freedom and confidence that I was like, okay, I kind of feel like I'm I'm not bulletproof, but I've definitely like I'm aware of bullets now, uh-huh, <laughs> you know? good, good. and uh, and so we started the business by making flash websites. And what we learned very early on was we weren't making flash websites. What we were doing was helping these organizations who were new to digital and were new to social media learn how to have a two way conversation. We were helping them act like humans.
0: I have some experience in that world, too, that predates
1: Flash, which is a scary
0: thought, but it's true. (laughs) Um, And what you found yourself doing inside of these organizations was training, showing them what the digital media is capable of. Yeah. And what it's grounding in, the digital media allows you to do is have conversations with your customer base, which is something they hadn't been able to really do before because right. they didn't have direct access to their customer base, they would go through a store, and the store would have yeah.
1: access. Or, a, or, or an or, ad through a TV screen or right. something, right? Right, something like that, right. So here, suddenly,
0: like, they had a way to get direct input from the people who were interested in what they do. And that was a kind of shock yeah. inside of these organizations. It was an existential
1: it, crisis. I mean, like, there was a moment, I remember very clearly, we were at a big uh, consumer packaged goods company, and we were talking about... Uh, there they were they wanted to start a company blog and there was this whole debate it went on for like three meetings between the communications team and the marketing team and all these folks about the comments section on the blog and should we allow comments and who's going to police that and what happens if someone writes something bad who's going to respond is it going to be responding from the voice of the brand what is the voice of the brand should it be jerry who works down the hall who works in communication should he be responding should he say he's jerry should he say he's you know the, the the brand speaking right and it was like these meltdowns of planning because they didn't know how to engage that way. They didn't know how to act two-way. Right. You'd come in, essentially, as
0: the the web design guy, Mm -hmm. and you'd end up being the therapist. Yes. Discovering all the weird psychosis that it's like sort of under the surface inside the organization, it would all start to bubble up because you'd find these conflicts between different departments that all operated in different ways that did not necessarily like understand in the same way what it is the company does. Right. Right, that's exactly right. I went through some of those. I <laughs> helped lead some of those therapeutic sessions, but still, I'd say ninety-eight percent of the folks who were doing that kind of work and ended up becoming, you know, essentially corporate consultants mm-hmm. in 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 helping companies redefine how they operate in the digital era. Yep, didn't bring an empathetic or, say, spiritually grounded approach to what they did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm wondering how that started to happen for you.
1: Sure. So when I started the company, there was myself and a friend. And then we had two hires. And then we had two more. And then I was 24, 25, and we had about 50 people working for us. And I didn't have a lot of mentors or uh, business people around me that were there as kind of a safety net. And I started to carry the stress of that pretty heavily. I would walk in the door every day. And I didn't see 50 people. I saw 50 rents that need to get paid and 50 people who need to buy groceries every week and 50 people who need to be able to afford their commute and – I was the only person really doing uh, a lot of the business development. Um, I was doing all the design. I was doing. I was leading all the strategy work. I was. I, I had a lot on my shoulders, and I had no way of coping with that. So the way I coped with it was drugs and alcohol and all of the things. been thing- there, yeah, yeah. All of the things that you know are all every bad coping mechanism you could imagine was 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 my jam, and I went through. A period of time where that was basically a a numbing mechanism between the working hours and sometimes even eking into the working hours where it was like, this is the only way I'm going to get through the day. And one day I was changing the water cooler like any good boss should. Uh And I just saw white. The next thing I knew, I opened my eyes and I was laying on the ground and the water cooler jug had fallen on the floor and was just glugging water onto me. And I had ruptured three discs in my low back. And Whoa. I was taken to the hospital, and they did all the tests and everything. And they were like, "Look, you've you've destroyed your lower back. Um, we're gonna have to have surgery. It's gonna it's gonna be a painful process, but you'll have arthritic pain for the rest of your life. But you'll be able, you know, you'll walk and you'll be fine." And I've said, "That's a lovely diagnosis." Yeah, thanks, thanks, doc. Twenty five years old, and um, and I said, "I I I kind of have to imagine that there's an alternative path to this too." And they were like, "No, no, no. Like this is it. Like you can." trust us on this. Yeah, we'll put some pins in you and you'll be fine. And yeah. so I left, I remember I left NYU uh, Hospital over on First Ave with a with a cane and it took me like an hour and a half to just get to the corner to get to the taxi line because I was in so much pain and I was just like eking my way through the whole thing and uh, got home and took a bunch of Percocets or whatever they gave me that night and woke up in the morning and I was like, this is not the way of like, this is, this is, there's a fork in the road here and I can go one of two ways and this doesn't feel like the right path called a friend, was just kind of bitching about it to him. And he said, well, have you ever tried acupuncture? I've never done it, but I've heard it's a good thing. And the, you know, this is an earlier time when that was still a little kind of further afield than it is now. I think it's, it's certainly in the past 15 years become a lot more uh, the norm. Um, but alternative medicine at least wasn't on my radar to that degree back then. And so I said, sure, yeah, I'll try anything right now. Went to an acupuncture session and pain went in that first session from a hundred to 99 and a half, right? Like it didn't change anything, but there was a crack in the door. And I was like, mm, I'm going to come back. And I went back again, and, you know, the, the traditional Chinese medicine doctor said, if you had to rank your stress on a scale of one to 10, what would you give it? I said, my answer was like, you know, a hundred, right? right? And he said, well, what are you doing to manage your stress? And I told him all of the things I was doing that were not productive. And, emptied my and, pockets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he said, um, well, have you thought about meditation? I said, I can't sit still. There's I, like, I just like, I try and like, it's just like, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, there's too much going on. He's like, well, have you ever tried Tai Chi? It's moving meditation. It might give you something else to do. And I said, no, I've never tried it. And found a Tai Chi instructor, kept going back to acupuncture with a cane, you know, the whole thing. I was like still really banged up. But slowly and surely, as I started to clean things up and started to build a practice, It got better. Do you remember your first Tai Chi? Oh yeah. What was it like walking into that class? Well, what's so fucked up is, so I had that conversation, and it was around Christmas time, and I was that night in a cab on my way to a a Christmas party that a friend was throwing in a um, restaurant, Italian restaurant in Brooklyn somewhere, and it was in the basement. They had this like little private room, and I'm walking down the basement stairs, and there are 49 drunk white people in this room and one old Chinese man and he's like weaving through the crowd and as I get to the last bottom step of the, of the thing uh, the, the flight of stairs to go into the basement he's standing there and he puts his hand out and he says Hi, I'm Master Ru I teach Tai Chi what? And I said, "You got to be fucking kidding
0: me." That's amazing.
1: And uh, well, and, and you have a cane, and I have a cane, and, and <laughs> he's like, and he was clearly like, yeah. "This dude needs some help." <laughs> and so uh, that began my practice with Masteru, and we, you know, went down to South Street Seaport. Okay, every so morning. let's talk about this for a second. Okay,
0: what's really going on here? Okay, <laughs> because you know, many of us who end up in this kind of quirky, you know, consciousnessy, mm-hmm. you know, playpen have arrived here because of strange things like that, right? Where you feel like, oh, wait a minute, somebody wrote this script, right? You know, who, what, what the, what? (sighs) There's an alignment, there's Mm -hmm. an attraction, there's a synchronicity machine that's in play, or I'm becoming receptive to the
1: synchronicity machine. I think that's how I would think about it for myself, for sure, that my willingness to listen and to see what's being put in front of me is, is shifting. Which
0: is essentially like an opening towards being present. Yes, right. Right, the beginning of like, oh, I'm just here right now. Let's pay attention to what's actually going on here.
1: Right, right, right.
0: And then these things start to present themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And you've gone deeper with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I started working with Master Roo. As I started to get better, I was like, oh shit, this is this is an interesting world, and there's so many things. And I went on. This- no. So when it first started, it's like, are you like telling your friends? You know. I, I, I just wish
0: I could do more Percocet, but I got to go to this Tai Chi class. Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> kind of. I mean, there's yeah.
0: kind of the conflict there. There's like some, like, what is it? What
1: am I doing? There certainly was like a that my life is changing and I'm making other decisions. And I don't know if this is, I don't know where this is going to go, but it's definitely not feeling as dark as it did. Right. So like it it started to kind of just pull me in that direction.
0: It wasn't disorienting in that way because oh, no, for some it people was. it was like, it, yeah.
1: "What the fuck I, is this?" I think you it know? was. What am I doing? Oh, am
0: I am I wasting my time? Am I thinking? You know, a lot of people go through that. Mm.
1: I didn't ever have the "Am I wasting my time?" But I think I had the "Oh, this is going to take a while." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a quick fix, right? This isn't a pill that you take for five days and you get better, right? right? And so. After going down that road and getting better, after about six months without surgery, I had no back pain, um, and my back had kind of course-corrected itself. From acupuncture and Tai Chi. Yep. And, you know, and stopping doing every drug imaginable. And so um, what ended up happening? I just got to ask
0: about that. (laughs) Okay. you don't mind. Was there a moment where you went, I'm doing less, I'm doing less, to. I have to stop this? For instance, in my own crazy Mm -hmm. experience, there was a moment where I realized- there's this friend I wanted to see who was coming from a much more, let's say, consciousness kind of place. I knew I could not be present with her if I was high.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: On stu- on whatever yeah, it was. Whatever I, was, it was. Doing. I was just like, I can't she can't see me like this. Yeah. I can't allow that to happen. It, so that was like that was when I realized like I better stop.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't then, it doesn't fit into your new life anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Was did you have a moment like that? It wasn't an on off switch, it was a fader. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but then I went on like the because I have an addictive personality. I went on the spiritual buffet line and just tried everything. Right, I was like, oh, I'm going to try this and I'm going to try this. I'll do you know, and and went down every modality you could possibly imagine and 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 no harm, no foul. Right, like that was that was probably the best thing I could have done for myself at that time because I replaced a addiction with an addiction in some ways and it was a healthier one and so I kind of went down that road and played around with things and saw what worked for me and what didn't work for me and I stuck with the things that did because I think at a certain point you do have to commit to a practice if you're going to get the value out of it you can't like dabble in seven modalities right you kind of like if at a certain point really the, the committing and the going deep is where it, it opens up for you so can I yeah because that's such a huge topic and we're not going to go down to, yeah. all the way but for you,
0: mm-hmm. can you explain to somebody who hasn't had that experience why that's important?
1: I don't think I have personally enough mental capacity to learn the depth of a tradition as complex as traditional Chinese medicine or Taoism or whatever it may be, right? Uh, you know, a particular type of yoga and do multiple ones, right? Like you kind of have to like, you have to pick a major. That's why you pick majors in college, right? Because you can't major in everything. And so if you pick a major, you've got to go down the rabbit hole of that thing. And so that's sort of what I had to do.
0: They had to pull back from all the different things. that look so alluring out there. I'll try a little bit of this, a little bit of Mm -hmm. that. Certain point you found like there's more value and sticking to this
1: thing and that. Sure. Thing. You can minor in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what did you major in? Um, well, I have a Taoist practice for myself that is what sort of keeps me grounded and stable. And I do Qigong and Tai Chi every day and, you know, haven't missed a day in years. And, like, for me, that is my that is my stabilizing practice, right? But then there was an indigenous shamanic practitioner, a uh, curandera um, from Mexico uh, named Doña Leova, and Donia comes to New York a couple times a year because she's very connected to the kundalini yoga community here because she was Yogi Bhajan, who was the real sort of, you know, uh, popularizer, if you will, of, of kundalini to the States. She was his healer for uh, over 20 years. She traveled around. So he, She was very much a part of this community. When he died, he told her, New York is your second home. You can always find a home here. So she comes back a couple times a year. A friend recommends I go see Donia. I go see Donia, and she beats the living daylights out of me. I mean, that's what she – her practice is very physical, and it is it, it is built to sort of, you know, release the trauma and the holds and all the stuff you're kind of not letting go of.
0: When you say she beat – like, what like, did she uh, – I, mean,
1: I mean, there's a whole uh, – she has hands that are like stones. First she's of doing all. body work. Body work. It's yeah. physical body work. And you know, it hurts. And it hurts. Hurts. Capital H. Like rolfing with two cap, cap, capital R's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. And But it felt great. And at the end, I felt amazing. And, you know, I'm bawling in tears sitting on the floor. And she's just, you know, beating me up for an hour. She's opening up all this emotional stuff into muscles. That's been coming out. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't speak very great Spanish at the time. And uh, she had a translator there. And she said something to me. And I looked at him and I said, did she say come back tomorrow? And he said, yes. And I said, I have to come back for another one of these? And he said, no, no, no. Hold on, let me talk with her. And he talks with her a little in Spanish and he comes back and he says, No, she wants you to come back tomorrow to start to learn how to do this.
0: Wow. And,
1: and so I said, Okay, I'll be back tomorrow. And you hadn't asked her. No, but she kind of knew that that was like, uh, this was the thing to put out there for me. And if I said yes, then she was going to invite me into this tradition. And so, between Masteru and Dona Leova, those are the two traditions I have studied and practitioner now for the past decade. So, I mean, I treat people in private practice working in those traditions.
0: Okay, so you were doing flash websites. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah. working for corporate clients who yeah. like. If you mention to them, oh, by the way, in the morning I do a healing practice. Mm-hmm. You know, before I come in, I'm going to be doing you know mystical body work on <laughs> X, Y, and Z. They're not gonna hire you to do the new Coca-Cola website. Mm-hmm. Right? Just talking from my own experience. Yep. How did you begin to infiltrate the corporate work you're doing with this other aspect of yourself? I mean, did it originally feel schizophrenic? Or how did in you- the beginning
1: it so it felt super schizophrenic. Um and I had a I had a spiritual teacher. Um he was a a student of many traditions and really sort of, you know, like kind of a cross between like a third grandfather and a therapist and a mystic. And uh, his name was Gil Barreto. And Gil said to me, at one point we had been talking about this schizophrenic feeling that I was having. And he said, "Um, pull up as far as you can go and look down on your life and see if there's a theme. Is there something that is true in all of those things? And what I came to find is I am good at really just doing one thing, spotting the block That stands in the way of you getting where you want to go and helping to remove it. That's a pretty good thing. And that is true if you're laying on the table. That is true if we're sitting in the conference room. That is true in any instantiation of what I do is I'm pretty good at asking the right questions or feeling into the place where there's discord and then helping put some solutions on the table to help you get through it for yourself, right? Like, I'm not a big fan of the, the, the word healer. I think that comes with a lot of baggage for a practitioner. I think if we're doing our job really well, we're, we're holding the capacity for you to heal yourself with such integrity that you believe it and can. So the blockage, when you're working with somebody,
0: with a client, with an individual person on the yes. table, there is a visceral thing that happens On the part of the practitioner, Mm -hmm. where you can kind of feel, sense it, you pick it up, and then you're able to work with it almost in a non-intellectual way.
1: 100%. Right.
0: That's a very different kind of skill set, I would imagine, than being in a boardroom. It's the same
1: skill. It's a different form.
0: So can you explain to me how they're similar?
1: Yeah. The feeling and the sensing and the knowing, maybe to use a less woo-woo word, is the same in both instances, right? We're dealing with a person or people who have challenges that they're trying to work through. And those challenges take the form of physical, emotional, spiritual block, right? Of some way, right? Like they're trying to get through this thing. It's not happening. Maybe it's a interpersonal conflict between two people. Maybe it's a conflict you had from your childhood, right? But like it gets lodged somewhere maybe it's in your psyche maybe it's in your ego maybe it's in your kidney but like it's it's that is there and then once we kind of feel that and understand its root cause then we can help empower you to push through that but you come into a company there's mm-hmm. a team you're yep. not the only person sure and that's what this process applied the, empathy is the applied is empathy like, process which is
0: what the book is about
1: yeah right. has essentially taken a lot of that work that I went through and that I picked up on along the way and that I was trained in and said how do we put language around this that doesn't feel esoteric and out of reach and actually packages what is pretty emotional and internal work for a corporate setting
0: do you find that when you're working with people in a corporate setting bringing this kind of awareness into what you're doing as part of the process that they're then they then are picking up on this and it influences other aspects of their lives?
1: Yes. There are a variety of clients we have. I, I'll give you an example. So I, I gave a talk last week in San Francisco at a organization, big you know, billion-dollar company. And afterwards, a guy who was in the crowd who's a user experience designer, he's probably in his mid-50s, we had spent two hours in the room together. We did a couple exercises. I talked a little bit about the, the way we do this work. And he came up to me afterwards and he shook my hand and he said, I thank you, my colleagues thank you, and my family thanks you because I feel like I am going to be a better husband and dad as a result of this two hours we just spent together. Wow. And that was so touching for me because obviously that that's a that's an idiosyncratic case. That doesn't happen a lot. But I realized how even in as short as two hours, if you put the right tools on the table, someone can have a pretty prolific breakthrough for themselves, And this guy had one and he shared with me what he, and I won't obviously share that, but like he talked me through. He's like, well, you know, when we were talking about this, I realized this about me and how I'm doing this thing at home. That doesn't feel, and And he walked out of the room with the biggest smile on his face. And I walked out of the room with the biggest smile on my face. And I said to myself, like, this is, this this is, this is the work I want to be doing. We're getting close to the end of the interview. So let me get dark
0: for a moment. Okay. Um, You know, we have a really fucked up president. We do. And the country seems like it's, you know, coming apart at the seams. Yeah. A lot of anger, a lot of, boy, a lot of blockages. hmm Okay. What do you see coming ahead? Like, when you talk about this as a way that big global corporations are now essentially shifting their company culture in order to have an open space— for this much more empathic way of understanding the needs of their employees, but I'm assuming the needs of the wellness requirements of their consumers, Yeah, right? That feels so much at odds with other things that are happening yes. that, frankly, dominate the front page of print newspapers or web- news websites yeah. or get most of the airtime on CNN and Fox News. Mm-hmm. What's Discuss. going on? What's yeah. going on? <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: look, I am a chronic optimist, and I think that sometimes you need a fever to get rid of a cold, and America has a fever right now, and all of the worst bits of America are on fire, right? But if you look at what happened just even most recently, I don't know when this will air, but like in the, in the midterms, right, uh, in the midterm elections- highest voter turnout we've had, a huge shift in the diversity of candidates who have been brought into office. And would that have happened under, obviously, a lot of other terrible things would not have happened under a different uh, regime. um, And I'll use that word specifically with him. But maybe it stirred the pot in a way that we needed it stirring. Maybe things were a little complacent. Maybe we weren't taking, maybe the liberals weren't working as hard to affect the change that we do need to have happen. And now we've got a, a, a real need to do so. And it's getting people out of their chairs. And so, like I said, that's a very optimistic view. And there is a lot of terrible things happening in this country right now. And we're getting you know pulled into them on a, on a host of levels. I mean, we've had Conversations with organizations like Southern Poverty Law Center, most recently, and helping them think about how might they improve their messaging in order to be more effective in this time of crisis. We had a conversation about nine months ago with the State Department because they're State Department, yeah, because they're thinking about how ambassadors in foreign lands are actually having a much harder time doing their jobs because they're trying to be diplomats in a place where we're not viewed as the most diplomatic country in the world and how do the state department has enough self-reflection,
0: self-awareness of what's going on there's some switched on
1: people there, yeah indeed, <laughs> <laughs> we literally met in a basement and they told me that if you tell anybody you're here we'll probably lose our jobs but <laughs> we're not going to talk about it now but yeah. I, had a,
0: I have had a similar experience yeah. with the democratic party leadership, Okay. Mm. just to say Yeah, yeah. but don't there. tell anybody we're talking about this because right. man, I'm going to my budget's going to get cut, yeah exactly yeah. that's exactly what they said, mm-hmm. wow
1: Okay. (laughs) All right. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This is awesome. And, you know, I I love the work you do. And I think that this community is one that uh, I like to count myself a part of. And I'm very uh, happy to share this story with you. It's awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
0: It's exciting to see how Michael and Sub Rosa are developing this approach to bringing consciousness modalities, kind of infiltrating them into a corporate setting, and that people respond to that. That's an amazing thing. Now, is it a little too late? Is this a tiny little drop of lavender essential oil in a ocean of toxic waste? I'm not the guy to say. (laughs) But I have to say that it's inspiring to hear that this work is going on And it really does offer me a window into a possibility that may well be taking off. Not that anybody's really tracking this at the moment, just how deeply these consciousness modalities are entering into the mainstream and affecting the decisions of people within institutions to move them away from the more toxic kinds of behavior that have been prevalent for so long towards a place of compassion with an eye towards ecological sustainability. We can only hope. I want to thank Michael Ventura for being a guest on the podcast. I want to thank you also for joining us. You can follow what Michael is doing at SubRosa at the SubRosa website, which has the URL of wearesubrosa.com W-E-A-R-E-S-U-B-R-O-S-A .com also, you can follow Michael on his Instagram, The Michael Ventura. B-E-N-T-U-R-A. If you like what we're doing here on the podcast, please share it with friends, let us know, post a ratings, stars on iTunes, and if you want, you can drop us a note at the Evolver at Evolver.net N-E-T. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, ACAST, or on the Podcatcher of Your Choice. And follow us on Instagram at the evolver podcast and on Facebook at evolver social movement. I want to thank our producer Jose Alfaro and the Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D Miller aka DJ Spooky from his album The Secret Song and our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia and here for a moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check him out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50